This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Okay. Verse 9. Now we get into the segment of location. I read verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, who was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The writer of the fourth gospel and the Johannine epistles refrains from identifying himself by name, but the author of Revelation leaves no doubt about his identity. In verse 1 and 4, his name appears. And now he says, I, John, your brother and companion. He makes clear who he is. He is a spiritual brother and fellow sufferer who has been exiled off the coast of Asia Minor. To an isolated island called Patmos, John is well known to his readers, but they have had to realize that in his exile something of extraordinary significance has happened. He has seen the Lord Jesus Christ and received messages from him to be delivered to the churches. <coughs> Instead of calling himself an apostle, he chooses the words brother and companion and places himself at the same level as his readers. Paul and Peter do exactly the same thing. John strengthens the concept brother with the word companion, which means <coughs> signifies more than partner or friend. He is a companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. First, there's the word tribulation. Jesus told his disciples they would experience great distress. Paul says to the Corinthians in Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Next, the kingdom. The expressing kingdom is related to tribulation. In this world, the one closely accompanies the other. As citizens in God's kingdom, Christians experience constant pressure from people who are the enemies of God, His Word, and His people. And next, patient endurance. John mentions it frequently in the Apocalypse as one of the characteristic features of one who follows Christ. But how do we explain the sequence of the three nouns we are examining? How does the kingdom relate to both tribulation and patient endurance? Members of this kingdom must be, must of necessity suffer and endure, as is evidence in the seven churches. On the one hand, Christians face tribulation because they are in the kingdom. On the other hand, they are to <coughs> told to endure patiently so that the kingdom may come through their faithfulness to Christ. Continuing, I, <coughs> I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
Patmos is a rocky volcanic island to which the Roman government in the first century banished exiles <clears throat> during the end of Domitian's reign who reigned from 81 to 96. John was sent to this island in his own words because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now he didn't go there to preach so he left on a late Saturday afternoon and went from Miletus, the harbor city, to Patmos, some 45 or more miles away. And then he preached Sunday morning, and in the late afternoon he caught the ferry and returned to Ephesus. Of course not. And please don't come around and say, well, he did some evangelistic work on the island of Patmos. You know, he felt an obligation to bring the word to that island as well. Nonsense. What we find here that John is banished and because he is the head, so to speak, because of his age, the head of the church at Ephesus, an influential person, he is banished because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. He is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And now, what do we do with the Lord's day? First, let me say that in New Testament times, from the days of Jesus' ministry on earth, until and throughout the ministry of Paul, Sunday was always called the first day of the week, and Monday the second, Tuesday the third, and so on. Friday was called the day of preparation. And Saturday, obviously, was called the Sabbath. And then toward the end of the first century, the Christians, becoming numerous, said, we call the first day of the week the Lord's Day, a day belonging to the Lord. I'm going to put it on the board for you. Here it is. <clears throat> and then hey. Mera. And I think the accent falls here. Well, let's go ahead. Kuriake. The word kurios is in it. Lord. And with the ending K, it means belonging to the Lord. So now we are talking about a day that is not ours but belongs to the Lord. Well, that's significant. Don't say, well, the Lord should be very thankful that I show up at 11 o'clock Sunday morning till 12 o'clock rush pass because I want to go to a restaurant at 12 o'clock, beat the crowd. And the rest of the day I can do whatever I please. Sorry. That day belongs to the Lord. Still more. 
I received, way back in the early 70s, I received, out of the blue, a calendar sent to me by a, an American missionary in Athens, Greece. And this was a Greek calendar. The very first thing, of course, I did was look at the days of the week. The first day was called, here it is, Kyriake. That is, the day of the Lord. Monday was called Deutera, or in Greek, modern Greek, Deuthera. And Tuesday, Trite, the third. And then Wednesday, the fourth, the Tate. And then Thursday, the fifth, Pente. So we talk about Pentagon, fifth uh, building with five corners. And then Friday, and lo and behold, that is called the Day of Preparation, Paraskevi. And Saturday is called Sabbath. That's interesting. Still more. That is, if you're interested, if you say, no, I'm not, please continue reading. But if you're interested, in Portugal and in Brazil... They count the days of the week. Sunday is Domingo, which is Day of the Lord, Dominus. Monday is called Segunda, Second. And Tuesday is called Trite, and so on. Friday is called Sesta. And Saturday is called Sabbath. Now, in Spanish, you have Domingo, and then you have Lunes for Monday. And then you have Tuesday, and so on. All the days of the week, much as we have them. Miercoles, which is really Mercury, and so on. And I have a bit of a theory. And as soon as I'm finishing, we shoot her down and say, no, 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 that's not at all the way it happened. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, I'm on my way to Spain and I'll visit you in Rome. Well, there was a slight, slight interruption for a couple of years. He was in prison. But anyway, he was planning to go to Spain. And Clement of Rome in the year 96, in his book, First Clement, tells us that Paul went to the most western part of the Roman Empire. Now, in your mind, call up the picture of Europe and what sticks out the furthest. Spain. Actually, Portugal. And now my theory is that Paul went to the western part of Spain, now called Portugal, and there he had to teach the people the days of the week. And you say, why? Because pagans in that day did not have days of the week. They just worked. That is, the slave population 
the noble people, if they were noble, didn't work. They had the first of the week, first of the uh, month, called the first of the calendar. And then they, the 15th of the month, which was called Ides, the Ides of March, Julius Caesar. So Paul is to say, I am preaching to you a God who created heaven and earth. And then it will teach the people the days of the week and say, now on the seventh day we rest. Well, actually, now with the week Christians, we are resting on the first day of the week called the day of the Lord. And then on and on he went and he taught. The second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, sixth day, and the Sabbath. Good. This is what you find in Brazil. This is what you find in Portugal, in Angola, and in other Portuguese-speaking countries. There's a footnote on page 92. I call your attention to it. Footnote 41. And there I've explained it all in detail. See it? I move on. <clears throat> Middle of the page, 92. John hears behind him a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. For him, the sound of this loud voice was unexpected and startling. The resonance of the trumpet, however, told him of its heavenly origin. John was reminded of God giving the Ten Commandments at Sinai where the Israelites heard the trumpet sound. The beginning of the new year was marked by trumpet blasts. Indeed, on the first day of the seventh month, the Jewish month Tishri, October, September, October, the people celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. This was a prelude to the Day of Atonement on the 10th of Tishri. In his eschatological eschatological discourse, Jesus speaks about his return as accompanied by a loud trumpet call. In short, the sound of the trumpet introduced the advent of the new interval. The trumpet sound in Revelation calls attention to an important message and the intensity of the voice demands alertness and obedience. <clears throat> Although, in this verse, the voice is unidentified in subsequent ver verses, the speech is that of Jesus, the first and the last, the living one who is alive forever and ever. <clears throat> now, I don't want to be irreverent. That's not my point. But when John heard the voice of Jesus, which he hadn't heard for 60 years, John was a young man, relatively speaking, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. <clears throat> John was very close to the Lord Jesus. He was called the beloved disciple. And now 60 years go by and suddenly on the island of Patmos here comes a voice of Jesus. <clears throat> Did John say, Good to hear your voice again, Jesus? No, he did not. He was filled with awe. You might call it holy fear because Jesus now came to him <clears throat> as the glorified Jesus. 
Now, Jesus puts his hand on John and says, Fear not. And then gives him the message. But standing in the holiness, the presence of the resurrected, glorified Christ is an awesome experience. We return. Jesus says, What you see, write in a book and send to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, Jesus tells John to take pen in hand and a scroll and write the messages. Now, don't think for one moment that John wrote this down, these messages, as you find them in chapters 2 and 3, and then sent them off to these individual churches. He must have kept a carbon copy. And then collected them and said, well, this is the beginning of my book. And then he continued writing and writing until he finally came to the end of chapter 22 and there was the whole book. My view of John writing the book of Revelation is that he has a scroll of some 50 foot in length. And he can say, I'm going to insert something or I'm going to change some, something. You have to see him as starting at the beginning of the scroll, putting down the words given to him by God through the Lord Jesus, and he starts writing until finally ends up with Revelation 22, verse 21. There's a complete book. And then this book, by way of copies, is sent to the individual churches. And this book is also made known to the church universal. Because John didn't say, now this is a specific message for the church at Ephesus. It's nothing to do with the church in Smyrna. No, absolutely nothing can be said about that point except except that the entire book of Revelation, in finished form, is sent to the churches. There is God's Word. I'm a bit irked about liberal theologians. I have mentioned that before. But when they say, well, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. Can't you see that it was only for the Romans? Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Can't you see that it was only for the church in Ephesus? I have only one word for it. Nonsense. Paul wrote for the church universal of all ages and all places. John writes the book of Revelation likewise for all people. Okay. Uh, the trajectory of the seven cities that are mentioned, mentioned sequentially is oval in form and may have been a postal route. The route is from Ephesus in the center to Smyrna and Pergamum in the north, 
then on to Thyatira and Sardis in the southeasterly direction, and from there to Philadelphia and Laodicea in the south. William Ramsey conjectures that from these cities, secondary messengers went out to neighboring towns with copies of the Apocalypse. These towns include Colossa, <clears throat> Hierapolis, close to the city of Laodicea, Thralls, Magnesia, Miletus, <clears throat> and last, Troas in the north of Pergamum. These seven letters, however, are for the church universal. It is more likely then that John is using the number seven symbolically to convey the idea of completeness. Hence, no church is left out, for Jesus has a message for everyone. Verse 12 and 13. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in an ankle-length robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, here we have the Lord Jesus speaking to John. In Greek, John writes the verb lalain, to talk, instead of the verb legain, to speak, which means that what he <coughs> wants to identify the sound of the voice, he wants to identify the sound of the voice and not the content of the message. We asked whether John would have recognized the voice of Jesus after many decades had passed. We have no answer. We know that the sound he compared to a trumpet alerted him to expect a voice from heaven. And now we have the words golden lampstand. We know in the tabernacle was a lampstand, one made of pure gold with seven lamps. Solomon's temple had ten golden lampstands, five on the left, five on the right, in front of the inner sanctuary. And Zechariah saw only one golden lampstand with seven lights, with seven pipes supplying oil to the lights. Even though John's imagery is based on the Old Testament, here the use of the word lampstands, to which he supplies the number seven. The lampstands are seven churches. Seven again denotes completeness. John pictures the entire church. And now he talks about the Son of Man. See also 1414. This phrase occurs twice. The Son of Man is walking among the churches which bright, brightly shine the light to dispel the darkness of this world. He has not withdrawn himself to heavenly realms. Rather, he is with the church on earth to be their source of light. And the churches receiving the light from him must be light bearers. And now the words, Son of Man. John uses the words taken from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Where the title describes the Messiah as the ruler of this universe. 
The Son of Man is divine, dwells in eternity, possesses ultimate authority, and is sovereign, the sovereign of an indestructible kingdom. Jesus applied the name Son of Man to, his, to Himself for the purpose of identifying Himself with fallen humanity to redeem His people. Here then is the majestic Lord walking among the churches to reprove and encourage, to command and commend. He is dressed in an ankle-length robe, a golden sash around His chest. We're talking about dignitaries wearing such garb. The description of the high priest's garment includes fine linen, a sash, and gold. The apocalypse presents Jesus as both king and priest, who released his people from sin by his blood, 1 verse 5, and also see 5.9. The feasibility of interpreting the sentence to refer, refer to Jesus' priesthood cannot be excluded. The sash of gold worn around the chest is also the apparel of seven, seven angels who come out of the temple dressed in clean bright linen with golden sashes around the chest. John now depicts the Son of Man with dignity and high standing. Still more from Daniel Verses 14 and 15, His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like exquisite brass, refined as in the furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters. The terminology is reminiscent of Daniel's description of God. Daniel writes, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Daniel 7, 9. Daniel notes that a son of man approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. The head and hair of Jesus are white as wool, to which John adds that they are white as snow. It is obvious that John does not have the written scroll of Daniel at his disposal and relying on memory, he attempts to approximate the biblical wording. White or gray hair demands respect and is to be regarded as a crown of splendor. His eyes are a flame of fire. And again from Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 9. Now applying to Jesus' eyes, he seems to have in mind the wording of the similar version, Daniel 10, verse 7. His feet are like exquisite brass, as refined as in a furnace. Now, this is only an approximation, and I get this by way of 
Colin Hemer, who conjecture, and I'm referring to footnote 46, that it must have been an alloy of copper with metallic zinc, which he calls copper zinc. His voice was as the sound of many waters. We pictured John at the shoreline of Patmos, listening to the waves beating against the rocks. Elsewhere, he uses similar wording to convey the image of the surging of the sea that is powerfully persistent and relentless. There's an Old Testament passage of Ezekiel 43, verse 2, where the prophet describes the glory of God and says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. Verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars, and a sharp double-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun's shining in his full strength. Seven stars. John did not rely on phraseology from the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus himself furnishes the explanation of the seven stars. He says, quote, The seven stars are the the angels of the seven churches. The angels are the messengers of God appointed to serve Him in the seven churches. The right hand can be interpreted as the source of power and protection. For instance, both the Old and New Testaments speak of being seated at God's right hand as indicative of possessing authority. The expression then symbolizes shelter and security through the divine power that Jesus provides for His people to serve Him as messengers. From Him they receive delegated authority and can expect His ever-present nearness. Jesus Christ never forsakes His own, even when they go through the valley of death as in times of severe persecution. Jesus says, I am with you, I am protecting you, and I'm giving you authority. I'm delegating you. A sharp double-edged sword came out of his mouth. Please don't try to picture it as an artist because then you picture Jesus as smoking a cigar. And that is not what is meant at all. What we have by way of the sword of Jesus is the breath of his mouth. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8. Jesus fights his enemies not with material weapons, but, but with the word of God. The Bible teaches us that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. In warfare... This word executes judgment and destroys the works of the evil one. And last, in the Greek, the verb came out is a present participle denote that the divine word continuously comes forth from Jesus' mouth. It is constantly active, protecting his own and proving to be destructive to his opponents. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is from Judges 5, 31, where Deborah and Barak conclude this song by saying, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may those who love you 
be like the sun when it rises in its strength. John writes not the regular word for faith, pros upon, but the expression upsis, which means appearance or faith. William Hendrickson writes that the description of Jesus must be taken in its entirety. I have presented a verse-by-verse -verse interpretation, but it is helpful to see the full picture in his words. Quote, Notice that the Son of Man is here pictured as clothed with power and majesty and with awe and terror, that long royal robe, the golden belt buckled at the breast, that hair so glistening white like that of snow on which the sun is shining, it hurts the eye. Those eyes flashing fire, eyes which read every heart and penetrate every hidden corner, those feet glowing in order to trample down the wicked, that loud reverberating voice like the mighty breakers booming against the rocky shore of Patmos, the sharp, long, heavy, great sword with two biting edges, that entire appearance as the sun shines in its power, too intense for human eyes to stare at. The entire picture taken as a whole is symbolical of Christ, the Holy One, coming to purge His churches and to punish those who are persecuting his elect. Well put. Now we go into the message, that is, verses 17 to the end. Verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Seeing Jesus in glorified appearance proved to be too much for John. Not so much because of human frailty as because of his awareness of his utter unworthiness to seek Christ's glory. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet. Which is a common posture of the saints who are permitted to be in the presence of holiness. John had seen his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they heard the voice from heaven, he and his companions fell down on the ground. Matthew 17, 6. Scripture reveals that saints in both Old and New Testament eras had similar experiences. Lying on the ground, John appeared to be dead. Yet his senses were alert. The Lord appeared to him, not to slay him, but to show him his divine power and majesty which John had, had to report to the churches. Both John and the churches had to become aware of Christ's awesome appearance and to do so in preparation for the message he had for them. Jesus places his right hand on John and ordered him not to fear. The hand of the Lord touched John to establish physical contact and his voice told him not to be afraid. Daniel also was touched and raised after seeing heavenly visions 
And he was told not to fear. But touching John, Jesus endowed him with strength to face the future. Fear not. Jesus had often commanded his disciples to stop being afraid. Whether it was on the stormy lake of Galilee, the Mount of Transfiguration, a missionary journey, in custody, whatever, Jesus never deserts his own people. I am the first and the last. He is also the first as creator and he is the author of salvation, the firstborn among the dead. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 18, And I am the living one, and I was dead, and look, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now what you do with Hades? We know when Jesus says, I'm the living one, I was dead, and I look, look, I'm alive forever and ever, that is readily understandable. But what about the keys of death and Hades? The one who has a key is able to unlock doors that give access to possessions, treasures, and secrets. Possessing a key means having power and authority. No one on the face of this earth is able to claim power over death and Hades. Jesus, who triumphed over death and the grave, possesses the keys to unlock them. Are these the keys that belong to death and Hades, subjective genitive, or are they the keys that give someone power over them, objective genitive? It stands to reason that Jesus, who has conquered death and Hades, has power over them and thus possesses their keys also. That is, both the objective and subjective genitives apply, for Jesus has complete power over death and the grave. Incidentally, the Old Testament frequently speaks about the gates of death. Now, what is the meaning of Hades? Is it different from death? Is it equivalent to the grave? Or is it the abode of the dead in the underworld? First, the apocalypse personifies death and Hades. Notice the capital letters. Next, death is a state and Hades a place. Will you please take note? Death is a state. Hades is a place. Third, although death and Hades are powerful forces, at the consummation their power comes to an end and both are cast into the lake of fire. Last, everyone faces death before Christ returns. Believers do not enter Hades, but enter the portals of heaven. But the ungodly are in Hades. All human beings will appear before the judgment seat of God and will be judged. But the saints whose names are written in the book of life will be forever with Christ. Hence, it is incorrect to interpret Hades as a grave, for everyone will return to dust. 
Jesus has authority over death and Hades, and when he speaks, both of them submit to him. He's the victor with absolute power. Write, verse 19, write, therefore, what you have seen and what is and what is about to take place after these things. Most scholars interpret the past, present, and future parts of this verse as a division of the apocalypse. And this is done as follows. What you have seen points to Jesus' appearance to John, chapter 1, 9 through 20. What is refers to the spiritual condition of the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. 3. What is about to take place after these things alludes to the period from the time of John to that of the Lord's return. Others, other scholars point out that the three time references, past, present, future, derive from a formula that was in use for centuries in many cultures throughout the countries around the Mediterranean basin. The formula describing prophecy encompasses the totality of history and seeks to disclose its meaning. We might consider this for formula to be a proverbial saying that transcends time and place and conveys the sense of comprising all of history. The clause, what you have seen, should be interpreted in the light of verse 11, what you see, John saw the awe-inspiring appearance of Jesus that stayed with him as he wrote his book. The impression he received can be formulated in one short sentence. Jesus is in complete control of everything that has inspired, transpires, and will transpire. We are unable to ascertain whether John wrote the Apocalypse piecemeal as he received instructions and visions from the Lord or whether he composed the entire book after he had received all the information. If we interpret the three clauses of verse 19 not sequentially but comprehensively, they take on an overall perspective. The things that John has seen, those that are and those that will happen afterward, all these apply to all churches of the past, present, and future. Thus the clause, what you have seen, refers not necessarily to pastime, but to totality. Similarly, the phrase, the things that are, is not limited to the present time of John's day, but is all-inclusive. And the words, what is about to take place after these things, imply everything that will occur from the moment John received the command to write until the end of cosmic time. And I'm heavily indebted here to Gregory Beale, now teaching at Wheaton Graduate School, who wrote his commentary on Revelation, and he also wrote articles on this particular point. Interpretive problem of Revelation 1 verse 19. We conclude that the entire content of Revelation is meaningful to any and every church that has existed throughout the centuries that exists today and that will exist 
in the future. The message of Revelation, therefore, is one of comfort and assurance to all believers, past, present, and future. And that would be my interpretation of verse 19. I would just add this footnote. <clears throat> Scholars holding to a premillennial point of view may say, not so, because what we do, we take three stages, three divisions. Chapter 1, the verses 9 through 20, number 1. Chapter 2 and 3, what is the second and third what is about to take place after these things is from Revelation 4 verse 1 till the end. I would rather take a comprehensive view of the whole book. The word mystery. And Jesus is explaining the mystery for us. And he does so by means of symbols. Symbols of stars and lampstands. He, he declares that the seven stars are angels. The word angelos, which you have in the word, or the name, Los Angeles, the messengers. A messenger on a Sunday morning is no one less and no one more than the pastor. He is the messenger. And the lampstand is the church that spreads the light of the gospel into the world. From an analytical point of view, why would Jesus instruct John to write letters to seven individual angels? Note that in Greek, the pronoun you, your, and the respective verbs in these letters are in the singular, which English is unable to transmit. You could be singular, could be plural. Why would holy angels be held responsible for the sins of the people in the seven churches? Would it not make better sense if he told him to write to representatives of these churches who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of their members. We know that Jesus is holding the seven stars, messengers, in his hand to send them forth with authority and to protect them. <clears throat> the interpretation of the messengers of the congregations are that pastors make sense if we view pastors as sent forth and commissioned by Christ. They are responsible for the spiritual development of God's people. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Note, seven again. The emphasis, therefore, falls not on the number of angels or the entire class of angels, but on their capacity of being representatives. Pastors come and pastors go but the pastoral responsibility remains. During the Old Testament era, Israel was undivided and represented a unity. In apostolic times, national identities emerged in forming synagogues, for example, the synagogue of the freedmen, 
the synagogue of the Greek-speaking Jews. When churches were established, national and linguistic difference played a role. But all these churches confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord express basic unity. They are the golden lampstands that dispel the darkness of the world in which God has placed them. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.